0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast
1: with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson. And unlike last week's episode, this show will be a lot more happier, positive, and confused. The reason for confusion is just a week ago. The Chicago White Sox got swept by the Arizona Diamondbacks at home. The White Sox fell to 63 and 65. They were five games back at Cleveland in the American League Central. We thought they were done and advocated for Jerry Reinsdorf to sell the White Sox. Then the White Sox lost to Kansas City. But in that game, we saw Tony La Russa at the very last minute having to leave the team because of medical reasons. Returning home to Arizona... To undergo tests on his heart. The White Sox lost that game and they dropped to 63 and 66, and now we're six games back at Cleveland. It felt like the hopes of 2022 were finally dashed. And then a funny thing happened when Miguel Cairo took over on an interim basis. On Faith and Family Night, the White Sox won. Then they blew out Kansas City to win that series. They came from behind to beat the Minnesota Twins in a very weird way on Friday night. Dylan Cease was so close to throwing a no-hitter and another blowout victory on Saturday night. While the White Sox won four straight games, Cleveland lost four straight games. It was the perfect storm for the White Sox, and suddenly this walking dead team found new life. The White Sox are still at 500, at 67 and 67. But with the major change in having Tony LaRusa having to leave the team, is Miguel Cairo making a good first impression and breathing new life to this team? And reinforcements are coming back this week with Luis Robert, Johan Makata, and even Aaron Bummers returning. Is it time to get back on the bandwagon? That's what we'll discuss in this episode. And joining me while on vacation during this Labor Day weekend, and we all hope that you guys are having a wonderful Labor Day is the managing editor of soxmachine.com. it's Jim Margulis and Jim, the white Sox are back. What do you make of this spurt? They're kind of back and the
2: AL central is meeting them on their terms. I think that's, that's kind of how I look at it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cause looking at the uh, American league central odds from the sports books, and I know we're not a big b- gambling podcast, but I bring this up because it's just the volatility. In the market. So Friday, before Friday's game against the Twins, the White Sox odds of winning the American League Central were plus 800. Very, very long. You put $100 on the White Sox, you get $800 of winnings. You get $900 if you made that bet on Friday. They win that game, it gets cut to plus 450. They win on Saturday. It gets cut to plus 300. It seems more and more people from Chicago and maybe even outside of Chicago are trying to re-jump back onto this White Sox bandwagon of, you know what, this is the time. Finally, the White Sox are going to get hot and they're going to finally win this American League Central because nobody in the division wants to win it, it seems like. We'll talk about the state of the American League Central in a moment. But I think what is also generating a lot of enthusiasm on national television Saturday night on, on Fox of all networks, Dylan Cease put on a show, Jim. It was by far his best start in his career. Eight and two-thirds innings of no-hit ball. Luis Arise with the lone single. And let's talk about that particular moment in the ninth inning. There was a lot of discussion of Dylan Cease should have walked Luis Arise to get to Garlick, who is next in the batting order. What do you think C should have done? Well, I, I wrote about it on uh, Sunday morning, or at least I wrote about Saturday night. Cause I was thinking about it
2: and just, yeah, rolling around my head and seeing the discussion online and hearing AJ Perzinski talk about pitching around Ryaz and pitching around in terms of like, yeah, I guess there are two ways to look at the term of pitching around. There's one that it's like, you know, see if you can get some, give them nothing good to hit. And if you walk them, that's fine. Uh, and there's also like unintentionally intentional walk. Like you can't intentionally walk a rise. I think that just looks weak or weird to just have, you know put up four fingers ever and have them go to first base. That would not seem in the spirit of a, you know, having a no hit bid when you're up 13 to nothing. Like, I think, you know, you have to at least put on the guise of attacking. Um, but I liked him pitching to arise. I know there's some dis- uh, discussion and um, you know disagreement about it just because a no hitter is a no hitter. And even if, fans might think oh, it's a little weak that he went around Arias in the wake of it, you know, in the, you know, year or two following the discussion, you know, eventually those details fade and he'd have thrown a no hitter. Like if he got garlic out after Arias, the thing I think about is like, you know, if he pitched around Arias and then gave up a hit to garlic, how weak would that look? Like just, you know, <laughs> I think people would say, oh, the baseball gods, like I I think, you know, the baseball gods are always a funny narrative device because they could say like, well, you know, the baseball gods smited him for pitching to the batting leader when he didn't have to. I guess, you know, you could uh, say in in this case that the baseball gods would, uh, you know, of course, garlic would come up with the hit because, you know, you don't pitch around a guy when you have a no hitter and there are no stakes to losing that battle. It's like you have to in order to, you know, be the best, you got to beat the best. And, and I think uh, that's kind of how I look at it is. Uh, and, and I wrote about this saying that I like watching baseball players compete. Like I enjoy the, um, the confidence that goes into it. Like, you know, I pointed to a play in, in 2011 when Coco crisps tried stealing on Matt Thornton tried stealing home on him to tie the game in the eighth inning with two outs and it didn't work. Uh, you know, he, he Thornton got the ball home and Pierzinski applied the tag in a uh, quick enough to get him by like a step. But it was close. And, you know, after the game, nobody disagreed with the call as risky as it was. People enjoyed seeing it happen. Like Thornton said, like oh, it could have worked. Like you know, had I you not noticed it. And Viscal said, like if I was a couple steps you know further away from third, holding him on, you know maybe it's a cleaner break. Uh, the managers were both saying like, oh it's <laughs> like they're almost saying saying like it's a shame it didn't work out because it would have been so cool if it worked. And Chris, you know, at the end of the game was saying that uh, I I would do it again. Just I didn't get the the best possible break. Um, you know, I, I could have done it better if I did it again. And that's I enjoyed seeing the confidence in one's ability, the I'm going to win this game for us, like I'm going to take on the chance. And if I lose, uh, then I'll have, you know, it'll be my failure, but it won't be because I didn't think I could do it. Um, and and that's what I enjoy watching when you see, you know, sports at this level. It's just seeing the confidence that goes into it. So I support his decision to pitch to a rise and you know, whether he was trying to pitch around him, you know, get the, the slider in the dirt it seemed like he was just trying to make good pitches. Like it didn't seem like he was scared of him. And I applaud him for not being scared of him like 13, nothing. Fine. Like say if he walked a guy um, and that runner advanced to second and it was a one run game and you know, pitching around a rise. Yeah. Of course you pitch around a rise then to face garlic because the runner on first doesn't matter at that point. You're not cutting a garlic, getting a, a gap, gap, splipper, <laughs> gap, gap splitter that could get uh Arias home from first so that's a smart baseball decision but up 13 nothing I think you have to try to take the straightest possible line the no hitter and actually beat Arias and he did and that's a shame but it was cool to see I, I like seeing him as the final boss and <laughs> didn't beat him this time but you know given Cease's stuff it might not be the last time we're having this discussion about like you know pitches made in they no hit bid in the latter third of the game
1: that's a really good point Jim we could see Dylan Cease in this position again, at some point in his career, this is one heck of a week for Dylan Cease. And I wonder if he'll get strong consideration for American league player of the week in his last start, which was uh, against Arizona. uh, Dylan Cease went eight innings. He just allowed the two runs, which were two solo home runs. Unfortunately, Kendall Graveman could not keep Arizona off the scoreboard and the White Sox end up losing that game. But then again, you have Dylan Cease throwing a one hit shutout, his first complete game of his major league career. The last two starts, 17 innings, only two runs allowed. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And what is interesting to me after the game, Jim, is how Dylan Cease was talking about just how aggressive the Minnesota Twins hitters were against Cease. They did not want to wait around. To get to strike two. And be in fear of striking out. They were attacking him early. So it's like he has learned a lesson from Johnny Cueto. If you want to be aggressive against me. That's fine. Let's see you hit this slider. Or let's see you hit this knuckle curve. Uh, And the Minnesota Twins were having a very difficult time. Making good contact against Cease. He didn't get his first strikeout I believe. Until like the fourth inning. But after five innings, he was at 50 pitches and that's when the thought being at the game entered my head that, oh, we could be in for a very special night. If Cease is just averaging 10 pitches and the Twins don't have a hit through five innings, that's when I had a feeling that like this could be a pretty special night and he's just one out away. But, you know, for Cease... He he continues to grow in front of our eyes, Jim. Just a couple years ago, in 2020, he had a lower strikeout rate than Dallas Keuchel. He had premium stuff, but he just didn't know how to generate enough whiffs or punch out batters with, with two strikes. And here we are, two years later, we're talking about a legit Scion contender. And with the news of Justin Verlander going on the injured list, and this is Dylan Cease's first start since Verlander went on the I.L., I wonder if Verlander's calf suddenly feels a lot better in the next couple of days. Uh, so Verlander can get back on the mound and try to keep his lead in the American League Scion race. Cause if Cease does this again in his next start, which he could cause it's the Oakland athletics is his next projected start. Suddenly that gap between Verlander and Cease in the Scion gets a lot closer.
2: Yeah. It's great timing on Cease's part. And you know, like you mentioned the Twins trying to attack earlier in counts and and really made his outing a lot more efficient than we've ever seen him uh, work. Just the, the 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 deep counts and the, or the lack of them was very refreshing. Um, the I, I guess what I'm curious about going forward with Cease is if other teams will try to adopt this. If better offenses will try to adopt this because the Twins are scuffling right now, as is every. Uh, team basically in the AL Central. So it might have been the right opponent at the right time, but Cease's slider is so good, you know, like depending on, you know, what you're looking at, it could be the best pitch in baseball by some metrics and, and, and by the ability to get swings and misses and limit damage that like perhaps just, you know, teams might go through a phase where they consider putting the ball in play early in the count a process or uh, like a triumph. And it turns out like, oh, there's no – you there's nothing here this is just weak contact this is just making his job easier we have to think of another plan but i wouldn't mind if other teams tried it and 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 thought like well maybe if we get the jump on the right pitch we're going to you know get ahead three nothing and turn the tables on him but you know I, right now i like seeing the way they attacked him or the way they tried to attack him because it's really hard to hit that slider even if it's in the zone like he's getting outs in the zone with it and that's, I think, the mark of a devastating pitch is just the movement, the, the, the barrel can't track it uh, in a way that's useful and, and damaging. So um, we'll see what happens when he faces you know, better offenses, trying to do the same thing. But for the time being, uh, I think you have to be pretty impressed with just how good that pitch is, even when he doesn't need it as a put away pitch.
1: Cease's ERA is still second in the American League behind Justin Verlander. Dylan Cease has a 2.13 ERA. Verlander on the injured list is at 1.84. Dylan Cease is second at strikeouts in the American League with 197 punchouts. He's seven behind Garrett Cole, who's at 204. Cease is third in Major League Baseball in strikeouts. The Milwaukee Brewers ace Corbin Burns has 200. Dylan Cease still leads the majors in walks with 64 but suddenly another Houston Astros pitcher is climbing up the Cy Young ranks and getting attention that's Framber Valdez and he has like 22 consecutive quality starts Jim I believe mm-hmm. and uh he is second not that far off of Dylan Cease in the walk category which is interesting to me because the strikeout to walk rate sure it's a lot of walks on Dylan Cease's part but he has a lot of strikeouts where there is a pretty significant strikeout to walk ratio for Dylan Cease in the positive. Framber Valdez doesn't rack up the same level of strikeouts as Dylan Cease. Uh, so I'm wondering if Valdez will get chinks in the armor when people are evaluating his Scion case when they look at the walk rate as the same way that's currently happening to Dylan Cease. But. After that start with Verlander on the injured list, you know I mentioned it on Twitter that there was this window of opportunity that if Dylan Cease wanted to make up ground, he'll have that opportunity, Uh, and he sure did. Uh, in in the start against the Minnesota Twins, and I can't wait to see him start again against Oakland. Like he has suddenly become must see TV. Like just not for White Sox fans, but I feel nationally. Dylan Cease is garnering a lot more attention Jim.
2: Yeah, it's it's among pitching enthusiasts. Like I remember, you know, a couple of years ago that Cease was really hard to watch and and you know, third parties were trying to figure out like why he's so tough and, and to like digest as a pitcher and why the walk rate is so high. And the strikeout rate is so low and just a miserable viewing experience for those who liked watching the craft of pitching. He's really turned it around. But the thing to me about like, you know, watching the Cy Young race is that, you know, Cease versus Verlander. Like I thought Verlander, uh, his big edge was the ERA plus having the edge in innings, despite having fewer starts. Like the fact that Verlander can like go, you know, an inning deeper than Cease in the start is pretty useful for this discussion of like how, how tough a pitcher is from start to start, but now Cease is ahead of Verlander in innings. Um, he he he's ahead of him 156 to 152 over three more starts. But I think you know if he can get one more start of padding, and so and no longer the innings uh, gap is there for Cease to have to address along with that walks gap you mentioned. That uh, yeah, that's you know Verlander is no longer a relative workhorse compared to Cease, and I think you know with McClanahan also going on the injured list. Uh, Valdez, as you mentioned, has a high walk rate. Also, has plunked a lot of batters, and Cease is not so. A lot, lot of free bases there. Um, yeah, the, the things start uh, falling into Cease's uh, corner, and, and I think you can see him get a lot more support. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit funny for, I guess, you know, traditionalist fans look at you know the conversation being among pitchers who are throwing like 175 innings and being like, "That's that's all it takes to win a Cy Young now." But right now, in in this the way this year has unfolded and the way that, you know, cease is going to be, you know, knock on wood, but like right now he's leading the American league in starts for a second straight season, 32 last year, 27 this year. Like that could be his own um, point of uh, in his favor is saying like, well, I take the ball every five days. Like I'm on the mound every time the white Sox need me to be, um, you know, Verlander can't say that. McClanahan can't say that. And so that's uh they're going to be, a. it's going to be a fascinating discussion and just, uh, I don't think there's going to be a wrong answer by the end of the year, but I, I think White Sox fans will have a right answer in mind.
1: Well, Jim and I are going to take a quick break, but coming up next, we're going to share our early thoughts about interim manager, Miguel Cairo. It's just six games, but how are we liking the job he's doing? We'll discuss next. This episode is brought to you by Trade Coffee. Just recently, one of our podcast listeners, Brian, which you can follow on Twitter at Magnificent Stan, sent me a DM raving about his membership with Trade Coffee. He's already on his second bag, and he told me it's the two best coffees he's ever had. It's easy to get started. Go to drinktrade.com slash socks machine and take the coffee quiz. There's just seven questions, so I'll take my quiz with you. How do you make your coffee at home? For me, I use refillable pods uh, as we have a Keurig machine in the kitchen. What's your coffee experience? Like I've mentioned in past episodes, I'm very new to drinking coffee. Do you take anything with your coffee? No, I like it as black as the White Sox uniforms. What's my preferred roast level? I like a good dark roast. How do you want your coffee to taste? Me, I want my coffee to taste like that classic coffee bitter taste. Do I want whole bean or ground? I need ground. Do I want regular or decaf? What's the point? Regular, I need the caffeine like I need air to breathe. After taking the quiz, the Trade Coffee team of experts do all of the work. They taste test hundreds of coffees from across the United States every month to curate over 450 exceptional coffees that make the cut. Trade is pairing me up with a bag from Sparrows, and they are from Grand Rapids, Michigan, with their Homes blend. So I'm excited to see how this bag of coffee will taste. Best part, if I don't like the bag... Trade will replace it for free to something that caters to my taste. So if you want to support small businesses and brew the best cup of coffee you've ever made at home, it's time to try Trade Coffee. Right now, Trade is offering our listeners a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping at drinktrade.com slash socks machine. That's drinktrade.com slash socks machine for $30 off your subscription to the best coffees in the country. Welcome back to the Sox machine podcast and I'm sure this is not how Miguel Cairo wanted to be Managing any major league team finding out very close to first pitch this past Tuesday that Tony DeRosa had to go see a specialist because he was feeling ill he had to take over that game and the White Sox ended up losing that game but then the next day he is listed as the interim manager as Tony La Russa is out indefinitely as he's dealing with health issues right now and is back home in Arizona and the early impressions of Miguel Cairo. The White Sox are four and two since uh, he has taken over for Tony La Russa, as Tony has left the team. He got ejected Friday night and what was a very weird ninth inning. I was in the stands for that game. I had no idea what was going on in the ninth inning. Andrew Vaughn got hit to load the bases. The benches cleared. Then Miguel Cairo got ejected. Uh, Jose Abreu had walk-off hit by pitch for a moment and then didn't (laughs) have the walk-off hit by pitch. But then he had a weak grounder that Jorge Lopez knocked down and slowed it down just enough that he could beat out the double play and the White Sox won off a uh, walk-off fielder's choice. And uh, the White Sox also had a players-only meeting during this time. And something that came out of the players-only meeting, the A.J. Pollock quote, was the first to come out of any of the White Sox players, and it's not very useful. But this one from Liam Hendricks, and I'm going to paraphrase here because there's some serious cussing, and I don't want anyone to get in trouble if you're listening to this episode in the office or if you have little ones walking around. And what Liam Hendricks said after Friday night's win against the Minnesota Twins, quote, everyone's got a little bit more pep in their step. It's just one of those mantras. This is who we are. We need to embrace. We are who we are instead of trying to be that stoic old timey baseball player, show some emotion, get angry and piss everyone off. Hmm. Jim, who could he be alluding to? That would be considered stoic old timey baseball player. Yeah, (laughs) a little of that,
2: uh, which, you know, I thought was interesting just because, like, you know, everybody has been, or I guess as rough as a season as the White Sox have had, everybody has been remarkably deferential to La Russa. Like, maybe they're following Jose Abreu's cue of just flattering the boss, which, you know, Abreu has done since he's come up. You know, whether it's been Robin Ventura or Renteria or um, La Russa. Like, he's always been very, like, he he puts all his faith and trust in the manager, uh, or at least he says so publicly. And so maybe everybody falls in line and says, like, this is just, you know, this is not how we're not going to be a mutinous clubhouse um, no matter how we want to be. But, yeah, it seems like a it seems like a smog has lifted a, a, of some kind. I, I don't want to try to indulge the timing too much because this could just be like the White Sox leading. Uh, are coming out on the leading edge of an AL Central matchup between two mediocre teams. And then they go to Seattle and then they get smoked <laughs> just like, well, I guess the, you know, the Miguel Cairo thing, well, really wasn't a, a long lasting, uh, you know, effect. But I, I think with Cairo, I think there is something like following this team as a fan, somebody who wants them to make the postseason, somebody who follows, you know, the discussion online of White Sox fans who have been arguing about whether it's a good idea to make the post-season or not, um, which is so unusual. Um, so backwards. Uh, and, and so like, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, White Sox fans have a betting interest against them. The way they talk about them saying like, I don't want to see them make the post-season you know, because I'll win $600 and $100 bet if they didn't make it. Like I, that's the way it sounds. But when you follow just how miserable this team has been, to track and to watch and to read about and to hear and the post-game quotes and the you know, visuals on the field and the in the in the dugout and the bad defense and the questionable decision making like it has been miserable to where like you don't want to see this team rewarded for a bad process working out uh, in practice just with the whole Larusa hiring, uh, you know, the way uh, Jerry Reinsorf went about it, like that was bad. So if the White Sox get a bad result out of it, they deserved it. So maybe we should root for the outcome that's deserved. So uh, the uh, chances are heightened of a change being made. But, you know, however this Larusa thing unfolded and came about, like all of a sudden, you know, I I think it should be the case that White Sox fans should have no problem rooting for the White Sox from here on out. Like if Miguel Cairo gets them there, Maybe it's a mediocre team getting the postseason and they'll get you know swept in the first round and will be another forgettable appearance and, and nobody will feel great about it. But for the rest of the season, like everybody should be invested, especially like I would say, like the people really, really, really wanted Tony La Russa fired to just have Miguel Cairo's presence there or the White Sox performance with Cairo as the leading presence to prove what they'd been hoping for for months. And that, like, La Russa, yeah, just changing Larusa would improve so much. Um, because, like, yeah, as much as I might question just based on, you know, watching what happened with the Angels versus what happened with the Phillies, like, two examples there of, like, teams that needed a, a managerial uh, vibe change Getting it and not getting what they they hoped uh for from it, like I could see the White Sox fulfilling either spectrum because they're just so banged up and so much is weird about them. But you know, there was no harm in trying. I think we saw that just there. Even if Larusa got through this year, you wouldn't want around for next year. Let's just you know move on, uh consider it a failed experiment, and just try to salvage the season. So, I think at this point, you know, watching them play well, play confidently, like even the loss on. Uh, Sunday was a Dylan Bundy loss like a normal Dylan Bundy loss but like it was fine like it was an acceptable loss to, you know, based on how they played the first two games and if they keep playing you know two out of three baseball the rest of the way that's probably good enough to get the job done um, especially if they don't beat themselves too much like everybody shouldn't be invested in the White Sox playing as well as possible to prove the point point. And that's pretty neat to feel that again, to feel like no strings attached for the White Sox winning games and winning in spite of themselves or getting dragged into the division that they shouldn't deserve to win. Like they're, you know, basically the the catch is gone. And so if Cairo gets there, cool, great. Like even if you don't feel great about their chances going forward, like it'll have done enough for them to get to the postseason with Cairo in charge.
1: You make really good points, Jim. And I know that we're kind of sounding bipolar for our diehard podcast listeners because last week in that episode of Monday, we were very dour. We were ready for this team to get stripped down just because, my Lord, they got swept at home by the Arizona Diamondbacks. There's no chance for them. And that mood didn't get better Tuesday night when the news hit the wire that Tony La Russa had to leave the game. He didn't even make it to the game. He had to go see a specialist immediately in Chicago to receive medical attention just a a few minutes before Tuesday's game. And they lose that game, and they're six games back. If the Chicago White Sox pull this off with Tony La Russa not returning, and they do this under Miguel Cairo, they would have made up six-plus games— on the division leader at the time Cleveland to win this division with like 30 games left to go in the season. That is not a Hill. That is a mountain to climb for any team in any division in major league baseball to make up six games in 30 games is a lot. It's a lot of work and you got to get red hot and you need luck on your side. And Yeah, the White Sox are counting on Cleveland and Minnesota to continue being mediocre, just like that they are. But I'm wondering, like the question is: Is Miguel Cairo breathing new life into this clubhouse with Tony gone? And you and you compared it to the smog has been lifted within the clubhouse. If they can pull this off, I'm gonna look back and laugh and say. We were calling for this in June. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wanted Tony fired in June to go to Miguel Cairo or someone to act as the interim manager. And if he can pull this off, then I think it does prove a point to the White Sox front office. And most importantly, to Jerry Reinsdorf. Sure, you could have Tony La Russa within your organization, He's one of the smartest baseball people in the history of the game. Maybe he can help you in the front office. But there's clearly a disconnect between the players that you have on your roster and Larusa. Maybe somebody else needs to be delivering the message every day. Somebody else needs to be the manager. And maybe it's Miguel Cairo. Maybe it's not Miguel Cairo. But in the last six games, the White Sox feel... More like themselves, Jim, for example, on offense, they've hit 11 home runs. I know it's the Royals and twins, but this is like one of the most powerful stretches of the season. The White Sox are back hitting home runs. And I know we've been, you know, poking Frank Minikina all season. And, you know, I've been making the point that I think he's going to get fired after the season with how terrible this offense has been performing. But it just suddenly seems like in this week that the White Sox are more like themselves. And I don't know how much you give credit to Miguel Cairo. Or maybe it is, hey, Larusso's is finally out of the way. Uh, We can just be ourselves. And, And it seems like from that quote from Liam Hendricks that the White Sox players right now feel more like who they were in 2020 and in parts of 2021.
2: With Liam Hendricks quotes, I never quite know um yeah as far as how much to read into him just because he is a a rather garrulous fella and i think he's somebody who does try to yeah i think he's media savvy knows how to present certain things but like you know when he said that the white Sox, you know got complacent based on the you know way they played how easily they coasted to the central crown the year before and just thinking like uh you know you know why why do the white Sox of all teams need somebody tell them not to get a complacent when they've never won division titles consecutive years in their entire history. Like that, that kind of, I could appreciate it, but also like rub me the wrong way a little bit in this case, like also like you need to get back to yourselves, but why, you know, why did it take until September? And I don't necessarily, you know, mean as a, a mark against Hendricks, because it very well could be true and characteristic of how the White Sox have struggled. But like, I just wonder if just, you know, the, the disconnect between La Russa and the clubhouse was a lot greater than, you know, they, anybody could present it on record or anybody could, you know, actually, you know, put, um, even, um, you know, anonymous sources too, just because they were, they kept it buttoned down and and in-house well enough, but I'm going to be fascinated. Like, even if they come, like, I would say whether they win it, uh, regarding the central, whether they come within a game or two and a, they, they look like the team they were and just Cleveland happens to win, you know, the games they need to win in order to hold their lead. Um, If even if they come like tantalizingly close, like that's going to open up a whole potential can of frustration among players and personnel and the White Sox team who like, imagine if we fired Tony La Russa in June, you know, it just, you know, they could be second guessing that the whole season, like imagine if we just didn't have that, we all knew we were dealing with and it took until September to understand in terms of results just how much this was holding us back <laughs> and like I could I could see like the discontent being voiced a lot stronger after the season's over, uh, no matter what happens. but I certainly hope you know just based on you know the uh, how rare it is for the White Sox to make the postseason that they make the postseason no matter just how much they
1: uh, how much of the year they've spent not looking anything like a postseason team. If the White Sox keep winning, Tony deRoos has got to stay home, right? I would think so. I would think like the thing is like, you know, because, you
2: know, we had to say like reportedly had a heart problem because the White Sox still haven't come out and said anything. You know, they haven't confirmed anything. It's been Bob Nightingale. (laughs) He basically. uh, And
1: on that point, because it's something that people have been bringing up. Yes, there is the whole HIPAA situation that the White Sox have to be careful on what message that they convey to the media because they may not have Tony the Russa's permission. Jim is right. We are getting these reports from Bob Nyongale of USA Today, who is the national mouthpiece of the Chicago White Sox. We know who his sources are. So is there sources within the White Sox organization that's leaking this information to Bob Nyongale to let us know that, yes, it's something with his heart. It is a medical issue, and that's why he's in Arizona.
2: But the fact that it's been so vague on an official front makes me think, like, you know,
1: I, I don't know what to think of in terms of how
2: serious it is. Like whether it is actually something that need to get checked out, and you know he could be back in a week if they wanted him to be back, and but because they're leaving it so vague and open ended, and you know causing quotes of concern from the White Sox clubhouse saying we're just hoping he's okay, um, when really it's just kind of maybe some something routine involving a pacemaker that you know requires time to fix, but is not you know a season altering, uh pro- you know I, I don't know what to make of it, but the fact that they haven't said anything makes it very easy to not say anything for the rest of the year and just let it go. And, and, you know, regardless of whether the White Sox win or lose under Cairo, like I don't think, you know, I don't get what anybody would get from having Tony La Russa come back. Like just, it seems like, an, you know, the White Sox, if they wanted a quiet way for this to dissolve and then go into the offseason without saying like, you know, they fired anybody, like the mission accomplished, because as much as people might want to know, um, ultimately, I think when it comes to White Sox fans, they don't care as long as Tony Russa isn't there. Like, they'll take any excuse. Um, you know, I, I don't think, I think most of them are wishing him well and don't want to see his health compromised because of the White Sox or what have you. Like, they didn't want to see it come to this. But, you know, as long as, you know, whether they're kind of gaming this to allow him to leave without firing him, what have you, like, leaving under what Jerry Reinsdorf considers the gentlest terms. Like who cares? As long as, you know, the white Sox are actually acting like a serious team with regards to the managerial position.
1: And going down this hypothetical road, let's say Tony La Russa health wise, his doctors do not recommend him being manager. Sure. You could still work in baseball, but your heart or your body or your health cannot take the stress of being a major league manager. Miguel Cairo's his guy. Mm-hmm. Miguel Cairo played under Tony La Russo. La Rusa thinks highly of Miguel Cairo. It's not like the White Sox are pushing Tony up the ranks into an office so they could just stash away grandpa and hire someone else as the manager. This would be like uh, a natural progression as far as uh, changing the leadership role in the clubhouse. Like it would be Tony's guy taking over for him. It would be Cairo being the interim manager or maybe becoming the manager in 2023. That's not something that I'm necessarily advocating for because I am a huge advocate of the White Sox getting fresh ideas and get someone outside of the White Sox organization to work with this roster. But just going down this hypothetical road, because this is something we're going to be talking about now and all the way through the off season if Tony can't get medical clearance, like it's not the end of the world. If La Russa has to take like that special advisory role and the White Sox decide that Miguel Cairo will be our manager in 2023, I don't think that'll upset Tony La Russa that much mm-hmm. because it's his guy.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It could be the uh, granting his wishes well enough. Um, you know, even if it were a 50 50 case and, uh, Doctor said, like, yeah, you're clear to go back, but this could happen again. And to where, like, just, you know, is it worth it becomes the question. He's passed John McGraw second all time. Like, this team is not going to get to the World Series for him right now in the position they're at based on the way they are playing while he was there. Yeah, it's a chance for uh, Cairo to get the opportunity. LaRusso thinks is he deserves at some point, even if he didn't think he deserved it maybe or was, was going to have to take on the role in 2022. That's a good point.
1: Let's move over to the state of the American League Central. Sunday was really weird weather-wise in Cleveland. The Mariners and Guardians started before the White Sox and Twins, but they had a four-plus-hour rain delay and picked up action Sunday night. So while you had the Padres and Dodgers playing Sunday night baseball on ESPN, the Guardians and Mariners had to pick it up. Pulling back the curtain, a little Wizard of Oz moment while recording this podcast, Cal Riley just hit a two run homer in the top of the 11th inning. So as we were recording this, the Seattle Mariners are ahead 63 on the, on the guardians in the top of the 11th inning right now. Uh, So obviously things could change if the guardians come back, maybe they hit a walk off grand slam from Jose Ramirez and that changes how the standings look. But this has been a very tough week for Cleveland and from a Cleveland perspective, Jim, Let's take our White Sox caps off. This was a moment for Cleveland to kind of flex their muscles and prove that maybe they can make some noise in the postseason. They had back-to-back home series against postseason hopefuls with the Baltimore Orioles uh, arriving in town and then followed by the Seattle Mariners. And unless Cleveland has a big comeback in the bottom of the 11th inning as we're recording this, uh, Cleveland's going to go to 2-4. and four. Uh, during these two series, they're going to lose both series against Baltimore and Seattle. How viable do you think Cleveland is as a playoff contender in the American League?
2: Yeah, and and the thing about Cleveland too is like the uh, their pitching staff, like Zach Plesac punching the ground, uh, having a non-displaced fracture in his hand, like Aaron Savali going on the injury list with uh, um, you know the the forearm uh, inflammation. You know, when we talked about like the the Guardians and the Twins and which team was better positioned, like I thought the Guardians would be you know, have the inside track just because of that right-handed pitching, but with two right-handed pitchers out, and, and you know, especially Plesac is the one who typically gives the White Sox fits, like there is an opening beyond just the the you know, I don't want to make too much of their struggles against the Mariners just because the White Sox had the Mariners right around the corner here and they could look just as bad. Like and you know, the the AL Central as a whole has been, you know, they're all under 500 against teams outside the AL Central. Like, it's its an ugly division. Nobody's really uh, covered themselves in glory playing teams, uh, the better teams in the American League. So I don't want to get too carried away with just, you know, judging the Guardians and how they played a very good Seattle team. but. The other pieces of, are falling in place here for the White Sox to season opening. I mean, they still have to beat some other you know, very good pitchers on the on the Guardians. So it's like it's not completely clear with McKenzie there and and and, and Beaver there. So but when it comes to like the Guardians beating other teams, maybe other teams who aren't so impressed with right-handed pitching of, of any kind. Um, that's, I think, what I, I'm, I'm most looking forward to. Or next few weeks is just like, you know, is this going to be uh, symptomatic. This, this guardians team is having trouble scoring, but is also losing pitching. Like that's a, that's a combination where I think that just like eats directly into the margin of error that they built for themselves.
1: And the offense is slowing down. Speaking of slowing down offenses, the Minnesota twins, this twins team really needs Byron Buxton back. They really need Byron Buxton back. They're just not as dangerous offensively, obviously as they would be with their best player in the lineup. And after this series in Chicago, the Minnesota Twins are flying to New York. They're going to the Bronx. They're facing the New York Yankees. And this is a fascinating series. One, it's a four-game series for the Twins against the Yankees. And I don't know what it is about the Yankees uniform, but whenever the Minnesota Twins see the Yankees, they play their worst possible baseball. So as a White Sox fan... That would be great because uh, maybe the White Sox can just win one game in Seattle but move themselves into second place over the Twins because they have a rough series against the Yankees. But, Jim, the Bronx is burning. The Yankees' 15-and-a-half mm-hmm. game lead in the American League East is now down to just five games against the Tampa Bay Rays. We've seen this before yes. as White Sox fans. <laughs> is this a similar situation for the 2005 White Sox and comparing that to the 2022 New York Yankees? I don't think so, just because the 2005 White Sox
2: were so healthy. And, you know, we saw, um, yeah, I think it was Dan Samborski who said, like, you know, right now the Yankees are playing at a historic pace, but they're getting so much out of guys who have trouble staying healthy and you know the projections for you know zips projections the rest of the season have them all over the place because of all the playing time that could be missed and you know the yankees tried to address it with uh, you know a trade for it was the montgomery um bader trade to um you know short center field because aaron hicks is falling apart but baders hurt and they could really use montgomery right now like they took some chances at the deadline that aren't working so it's a case where like yeah the the 2005 White Sox were just regressing to the mean a little bit, but they still had everybody they needed. And Cleveland was just playing really well. Whereas like the Yankees are dropping games to everybody. Like they're just kind of falling apart there. Um, you know, the, the Rays are playing. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, Toronto's playing. Okay. But like, they're just, you know, the, the Yankees are pretty much giving this away with just a really dormant offense. So it's uh, it's fascinating. And I wish that, you know, I wish this twin series weren't happening just because like I'm fascinated by both. Like, I'm, are, I'm I'm invested in both. I'm invested in the twins kind of falling off and, and succumbing to their injuries. But I'm also invested in like seeing if the Yankees just keep collapsing because this is staggering and just seeing like, you know, Aaron Boone having no answers. And then uh, the, the fall from this could be a 118 win team to, Oh my God, this team could miss the postseason is something I really haven't seen before to this degree. And, you know, the White Sox, you know, they were good uh, before that late season slide or the slide that was, you know, a mild slide accompanied by a huge Cleveland surge. Uh, but ultimately, you know, they got to, uh, you know, they, they still exceed in expectations in 199 games. So they got there. It was just a little bit of mild regression at the end. Like this is something bigger than regression, especially just when you see just the team wide failure all over the place. So I wish that uh, the Yankees would keep doing this, but yeah, you know, for a time being, I want to see them knock out the twins because I, I don't know about you, but like just the, I'm surprised by how off-putting Rocco Baldelli is
1: managing games. Just, I, I don't care for him. Having a position player pitch in the eighth inning, when the opposing team's pitcher is going for a no hitter, doesn't necessarily sit well with me. And I'm not the only one that had that same observation live on Twitter. And this is when Twitter is at its best. Many people nationally were pointing that out. Like, this is weird. This is sketchy. And, yeah. I. But you know what? It just adds to the rivalry. I don't like your manager, Minnesota. I don't even like your team. I don't like anyone on your team. I respect some players, obviously, but yeah, I don't know. Like, if if the Twins don't win, if the Twins don't make it to the postseason, I'm wondering if Rocco is on the hot seat. Shoot, going back to the Yankees, I wonder if Aaron Boone is on the hot seat because the team's not really responding to him. This is a fascinating four-game series. Uh, Obviously we're going to be paying attention. Yeah, You know, the benefit of the white Sox playing against Seattle is we, we can watch some of these games as kind of like the appetizer before the white Sox and Mariners play. But this is going to be a fascinating series. I don't think the Yankees are responding at all to Aaron Boone. The Yankees scored three runs this weekend against Tampa Bay Jim, Aaron judge, solo home run, Mm -hmm. Aaron judge, solo home run, Aaron judge, leadoff, double, out sacrifice if aaron judge is not hitting home runs this yankee team is not scoring let's hope that the rest of the offense figures it out for the white Sox sake uh so new york we're rooting for you in these four games <laughs> do us proud and then continue on your way <laughs> exactly but continue to fail uh continue to free fall uh, we did get this question from Rob Liedemann, one of our Patreon supporters. Rob, thank you so much as always for your support. Uh Rob asked us, will eighty-four wins win the American League Central? And can the White Sox get to 84 wins? I think they
2: can get to 84 wins. For some reason, like 85 is sticking out to me as like the number to get to right now. Um I think it's really, you know, even thinking beyond a number, I think really the 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 series against Cleveland, uh, the the last remaining series against Cleveland, seems like the one that could make this go either way. Like just the um, the White Sox, you know, as I mentioned, as we talked about, as we've watched them try to play the Guardians and and watching them struggle against you know Mackenzie and Bieber and just any other righty they threw out there. Just everybody has uh, a little bit of PTSD when it comes to just the uh, you know watching them. Play the Guardians and having Jose Ramirez come to the plate late inning. So, like, I guess, you know, to the extent I think about a number, 85 is a number, but I'm really thinking about this more, you know, to use a cliche, like one series of time, basically, because as we've seen, like the Central won't let the White Sox leave. Like, they just, it keeps playing down their level. It's like a dynamic degree of difficulty slider in a video game. Like, oh, you've struck out 10 times? We're going down to rookie level. That's what this reminds me of, just the way the White Sox are playing. So, I I just think the head-to-head matchup, especially that Cleveland series, which, you know, if it goes the way that many White Sox Cleveland series have gone, could knock them back down to the rungs that they were occupying before. But, uh, yeah, 80, it's not an impressive division and the White Sox have had, uh, yeah, it, what's astounding is, you know, at the end of the year, no matter what happens, we're going to learn like how big the margin for error was. And it's pretty staggering. And the White Sox may have used all of it. And if they get in, like they'll have used just about all of it. And that's a lot of error.
1: Yeah. The White Sox have to finish 17 and 11. To get to eighty four wins in two thousand and twenty two,
3: I think that's Uh, doable. Playing
1: some of their best base, I think I agree. I do agree with you. It's doable, and we'll preview the Seattle series in a moment. But they're they got three games in Seattle, and they got four games in Oakland this weekend. So no matter how bad you feel about the Seattle series or how uneasy you feel, the Oakland Athletics are a bad team. There's an opportunity for the White Sox to make up some ground this upcoming weekend especially when you have the guardians visiting the twins this upcoming weekend. So there could be some type of stalemate between those two teams that they beat up each other. That the white Sox are able to make ground on either team. Then they come home and then they have the two games at home against Cleveland. Then they have uh, gets Colorado. I'm sorry. Then they go to Cleveland for a makeup game. Then they go to Detroit and the white Sox have been playing very well at Detroit. And then they have the three-game home series, as Jim mentioned, against Cleveland. And then they have the three-game home series against Detroit. Before they go on the road to Minnesota, which we saw the White Sox win three out of four in Minnesota. They go to San Diego. I don't know what to make of that series in San Diego. Before coming back home against the Minnesota Twins. I suddenly have a lot of confidence in the White Sox ability to play against the Minnesota Twins. After we saw them in mid July gym in Minneapolis, uh the White Sox seem to have no fear. As a matter of fact, they play with a lot of confidence against the Minnesota Twins. So I agree with you. Seventeen and eleven is very doable for the White Sox to, to finish with eighty four wins.
2: I just think that, that those uh of those eleven, like four of them can't beat a Cleveland.
1: No, I, I think only two, <laughs> right? They gotta split they gotta split with Cleveland. Yeah. And speaking of Cleveland, we bought enough time as uh, the Seattle Mariners won 6-3 to three in 11 innings. So there you go, folks. Now you were listening to this podcast while that game was going on. So a little Wizard of Oz moment. Speaking of Seattle, Jim and I are going to take a quick break. But let's talk about that upcoming series as the White Sox embark on their West Coast road trip this week.
0: Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Our last segment in this episode finally previews the upcoming series for the Chicago White Sox as they head out west. They'll start this West Coast road trip in Seattle, which the Mariners finished their game at 11.05 p.m. Eastern time. They have to shower, get on the plane, and head west back home to face the White Sox. It's a very quick turnaround for the Seattle Mariners, but they are riding high. They are 76-58. and They have won seven straight games. They have won nine of their last ten games. And the good news from a White Sox perspective is that the White Sox have the series, a season series lead. They won two out of three back in April. That was a long time ago between these two teams. On June 1st, the Seattle Mariners were 21 and 29. They were eight games below 500. That was a bigger hole that they dug for themselves than the White Sox have. But unlike the White Sox, Seattle got hot. And they've gotten red hot. Since June 1st, the Seattle Mariners are 55-29. and That's the best record in the American League since June 1st. And that's the third best record in Major League Baseball. Can you guess the two National League teams, Jim, that have a better winning percentage than the Seattle Mariners since June 1st? Uh, Dodgers? That is one. Braves? Correct. All right. Atlanta has the best winning percentage. The Dodgers are second, and the Mariners are third. But that has been one hot streak Seattle has been on. Unfortunately for them, the second best team since June 1st has been the Houston Astros. And the Mariners have only made up one and a half games <laughs> during this stretch. Oh, poor Seattle. But they have put themselves squarely into the postseason race. And right now, they look like they have a chance of hosting as the number four seed in the American League postseason in this new divisional round, in this new wild card round, once the season ends in early October. The pitching problems for this series started on Monday at 5.40 p.m. Central Time during Labor Day. It's Lance Lynn on the mound against Marco Gonzalez, a left-handed pitcher. Tuesday at 8.40 p.m. Central Time, it's Johnny Cueto against Logan Gilbert, And then Wednesday afternoon, getaway day for the White Sox at 3.10 p.m. Central Time. We're not quite sure who's going to be starting. It sounds like Michael Kopech is recovering nicely, so there's a chance that Kopech could make this start. But it will be Luis Castillo making the start for the Seattle Mariners. So some tough pitching matchups for the White Sox offense to have to face Logan Gilbert and Luis Castillo. Miguel Cairo shared the news on Sunday, Jim, that Luis Robert will be returning to the lineup for the White Sox in this series. Also, the White Sox should be activating both Johan Mikada and Aaron Bummer at some point during the series. The band is almost back together. Do you think Robert and Mikada will be informed to play every single day, or is this going to be touch and go with the playing time? It feels touch and go like I don't have any reason to believe that Robert is 100%. Like he hasn't really played.
2: He hasn't really showed anything in a rehab stint. They haven't put him on the injured list to have a rehab stint. So I'm not really seeing like a, a light at the end of the tunnel yet for him. And I think they just, you know, they're trying to mix and match enough outfielder combinations together in order to, to you know, get across, uh yeah, or just not even get across the finish line, but just, you know, buy another series, buy another week. I think that's how they're thinking of it. And um, yeah, there isn't, really isn't like a big picture injury management uh, strategy in mind here. Uh, with Mankata, you know, he's Mankata. Like, you know, just I'm more or less shrugging <laughs> his production and available the rest of the year. Bummer is the interesting one, just because Jake Diekman is allowing a 400 OBP against lefties. Like when it comes to the White Sox and trying to have lefties to get lefties out, they've had a miserable time. Tanner Banks has reverse splits. Jake Diekman, I think he doesn't have reverse splits, but his splits against both are bad because he's just been struggling against, um, you know, hitters of any kind. So they could really use somebody like Bummer, and I think he'll get thrown to the fire more or less because lack of options against lefty hitters. But I don't have, you know, like, you know, he got hit early in, in the count, and I think they are playing Durham. And I think he gave three runs on 11 pitches. Like, he pitched a full inning. Uh, faced five batters, gave three runs, but only through 11 pitches. Like, they were jumping on him early. So, I'm not sure if the stuff is all the way back yet. So, yeah, for all three, I'm more or less skeptical. I think it's good to have him around, uh, especially like Robert. Like, it, it's annoying when he's taking up a roster spot but can't play. And Adam Hazley is pinch running. And, um, you know, Mark Payton is a defensive replacement. Like, he's just, um, you know, he's there, but he's not there. And I think we've seen too much of that from the White Sox of having. Uh, so many guys just sopping up a roster spot. And and that's one thing I can say about, like, in, in defense of Tony Larusa is, you know, how much of that was him? How much of that was the front office just giving him a shorthanded roster for too many days of the season? And so I guess it's good that Robert's playing. But, yeah, I'm just going to be watching every swing, every check swing, and wondering, like, just how many, how many more of those does he have before his wrist flares up and he has to go back on the unofficial IL.
1: Lance Lynn making the start in game one. In his last three starts, he's only allowed one earned run in each of those starts. And that earned run came off a solo home run. Jim, in his last seven starts, he's got 50 strikeouts to just three walks. And that is in more than 38 innings pitched for the White Sox. And it really just feels like he's going to win me the steak dinner bet. He's making that comeback. He's still got a long way to go to get a 108 ERA plus, but Lance Lynn has been pitching a lot better. Do you have confidence in him that he could start this series well for the White Sox? Cause again, it's Seattle. It's the hottest team in the American league, but that is a long flight home after a very long day in Cleveland. I don't think the Mariners are going to be at a hundred percent. It's the hottest team in the American League, but they've done it a lot with pitching. Like, when you look at
2: their last 30 days, like, they have they have the third lowest ERA in baseball behind the Guardians and Dodgers. When it comes to their offense, like, they're scoring a fair amount of runs, but not, like, a mind-blowing amount of runs. And they're, OPS, they're getting a lot, like, out of a substandard OPS. They've just been very good about limiting the home run ball. Like, I'm looking at their splits. Like, 38 homers to 13 allowed. Like, that's basically how they've done it. It's just limiting the long ball. And, you know, as we know, watching the White Sox this year, that just hitting homers is so important. So this is going to be a fascinating test on the offensive side when it comes to the White Sox lineup, this, whether this power they're, they're showing recently can translate to another park to translate against a better pitching staff. Like I'm skeptical it will, but it's worth seeing no matter what, because they're going to have to face that at some point. But I think for Lynn, um, you know, I have confidence he can do it. Like, you know, he's he's shown everything he needs to show in terms of the pitches, the velocity, the location. I like I think the curveball has been a really nice pitch for him recently in terms of giving him a non-fastball that can befuddle both lefties and righties. So just might be anticipating something between, you know, eighty-eight and ninety-four miles per hour, like having that curveball coming at eighty, you know, high seventies has has been a nice thing for him getting ground balls and some you know called strikes and some whiffs. So uh, I think everything's there for him, and I think the Seattle lineup isn't particularly imposing. Like they can hit, they can you know do some damage, so he can't take it easy. But I think the series is going to be about whether the White Sox offense is you know resurgent or whether it was just you know, looked better against an AL Central opponent, but a quality pitching staff in a park that's not easy to hit in um, you know kind of kicks them back down the slippery stairs
1: and makes them have to prove it all over again. You have mentioned this in our previous episodes that other teams are not copying to the level that Rick Hahn was doing, signing these potential star players, this young core to contract extensions. We've seen it recently Mm -hmm. with the Atlanta Braves, but with Seattle... Julio Rodriguez, which Julio Rodriguez is awesome. He is going to be the next superstar in the league. I think he's going to win the American league rookie of the year. He's got 23 home runs and he signed a crazy contract (laughs) with the Seattle Mariners. Yeah. Uh, I'm still kind of confused on how it works. It's like a 12 year, $209 million contract. Uh, he gets a $15 million signing bonus. Uh, it's It starts off as a seven-year, $119 million base value. Uh, he gets $209 million base guarantee with a $90 million player option that he could pick up. The total maximum value of this contract could be $470 million as there's a 2030, we're talking about 2030 player options already. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, sorry, 2030 is a club option. Seattle has to decide on that club option in 2028. So he'll know a couple of years before that club option gets picked. And he's got like the Byron Buxton type uh, escalator in his contract regarding MVP votes that if he finishes uh, in the top 10 four times between 2022 to 2028, in the MVP, his contract goes up to eight years, $260 million. And I am i know I'm losing you podcast listeners trying to describe how this contract works. Because there's like a full no trade clause in it. There's other player option escalators if he wins a silver slugger or a combination of all-star selections. And he gets bonuses on top of being an MVP and World Series MVP and League Championship Series MVP. There's a lot. There's a lot going on in the contract. But with Julio Rodriguez, I just want to get your thoughts on Seattle targeting him as this is the new face. This is the next face of our organization, and they are making a heavy investment in Julio Rodriguez.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I wrote about it saying like this is finally the, you know, it's not quite the contract extensions, Rick Hahn signed, but it is close enough, especially like a direct comparison to Luis Roberts. Like this is, I think the superstar insurance that the Luis Robert contract extension is insuring against. And, you know, as is the case with insurance, it's not satisfying until you have to exercise the policy and make a claim. And right now, you know, with Roberts unavailability, it makes it hard to the potential still all there, but it just makes it hard to feel like, you know, like, paying auto insurance is not fun if you don't get into a crash or like it's not, it doesn't feel useful until you actually need it. In this case, like it, it I think it's, uh, you know, seeing the choose your own adventure novel of a contract that Rodriguez signed and just watching to see how it unfolds, but just seeing the the staggering commitment regardless uh, does make it easier to appreciate what Ricon was trying to do. Um, now it's just a matter of whether his players can do it, but now I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing Rodriguez play because I've seen I haven't really seen him play in terms of like in the course of the game, I've seen all the highlights I've seen, um, you know, at bats that people have pointed to, I've seen the, uh, the, the wide array of skills, but I haven't seen them like in the setting of a game, like over the course of nine innings over the course of a series, just seeing like when his spot and lineup comes up, how that feels, um, you know, what kind of damage he does like that. I always find that fascinating when like seeing a young player like that is, uh, just how do they impact a normal game? And, uh, I'm, yeah. On one hand, I'm I'm hoping that he doesn't. On the other, I kind of hope I get a taste of it a little bit just to understand it. Just because I do like you know I'm a baseball fan. I enjoy watching really good, fun baseball players turn the game forward. And I think he's certainly one of the players who is in the best position to do that, both with his um, you know his skills and his personality. And especially like a Seattle market that is really starved for long lasting relevance, the way the White Sox are like, this is a great player for a great time if it works out. And so um, I don't want to see it happen yet, or maybe I do. And I want to see the White Sox still overcome it. But um, yeah, I, I think he's the the number one reason why, like, I'm going to be watching all nine innings and, and going back to see just if I have to step out because my son, uh, you know, wakes up crying i need to go address that like i'll i'll skip back to see like what he did yeah uh, just what, what the game log says match it up to what the visuals are and understand what he's all about because uh uh the you know the media around him has been incredible the highlights are are something and then like the contract he signed is just a case where like yeah they they believe you know it, it, it's a way to uh i guess um turn the hype into something trad uh, tangible in a way that just like, you know, occasional highlights here and there and just like, you know, the, the nonstop, um, you know, MLB hype machine. And just the way they, they, um, you know, certain Twitter kind of like the Ben Verlander Twitter accounts who make everything epic in flames. And just, you know, some of it can be a little bit overwhelming for certain players, just, you know, day in and day out. But Rodriguez, you know, the contract certainly suggests that the Mariners think the same thing. Like they see flames as well. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing just, you know, what it means uh, for a team like the White Sox over the
1: course of a series. I also remember Kyle Lewis and Kyle Lewis won the Rookie of the Year over Luis Robert in 2020. But since 2020, Lewis has only played 54 games in the majors. And I, I'm, I, I think there's a pretty sizable difference talent-wise between Kyle Lewis and Julio Rodriguez. I prefer Julio Rodriguez quite a bit, and I understand why Seattle made the financial commitment that they did to Julio Rodriguez, but that is also the risk is that this is, this is not new for Seattle. Seattle has had a budding superstar in the outfield, and that was Kyle Lewis just a couple years ago and he's really struggling to stay on the field. So I'm hoping that does not happen to Julio Rodriguez in the near future because Major League Baseball needs more players like Julio Rodriguez to be the next ones to take the mantle and be the next superstars in the league. But Kyle Lewis was very recent, and that is not turning out great. Yeah, I think
2: you know, they're on different levels. And I remember Rodriguez being a he was a part of that Kevin Mather thing, you know, the Mariners executive who went to some kind of rotary club thing and got, you know, just felt way too comfortable. uh, Yes. Talking about service time manipulation and, 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 um, you know, airing uh, some dirty laundry about players or like, you know, just kind of talking poorly about some players, you know, as a club representative, as club executive that uh, led to his dismissal and uh, you know, Rodriguez is one of them. And he's basically saying like that, you know, he was, you know, talking about service time manipulation, but also talking about like how, you know, Rodriguez, you know, is, uh, he's a foreign player. He's not, you know, American. So he's not going to be somebody who's a huge draw. I remember something coming up along the same lines and just every baseball writer, baseball America, you know, uh, baseball prospectus, prospect writer saying like, no, this guy is, is super engaging. Every field he's been on every level, like, you know, even, you know, even with an imperfect command of the English language, like he's going to be the guy. Like he's going to be front and center of every team you want to build, you know, as long as he can stay healthy and the game hangs together because he's just, he's got, you know, as Rick i used to say about nicky Delmonico, the it factor. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he's been able to kind of overcome that internal prejudice, pessimism, maybe he's just limited to Mather, but still, you know, if he's comfortable with the voice it, that means like that they've been talking about it in some regard, like it's cool that he's been able to overcome that and be that kind of guy immediately and yeah, I'm, I'm hoping you know, I'm, I'm hoping it sticks together um, just because you know, or I guess I should say like, I guess the argument against it sticking together is just like, it just makes every player more expensive <laughs> if he, uh, you know Plays that well, like that's just another extension door that will no longer be available to the White Sox because, like Rodriguez, if next Luis Robert comes into the White Sox system, like Rodriguez making that contract look great, um, makes it even harder for the White Sox to retain that player. Like they can game the uh, that that ability to game the system uh, might disappear on them. But I think uh, just in terms of just what he everybody has said about him, like yeah, really looking forward to seeing just what he does because he seems really cool.
1: I'm sure Aaron Judge is happy that <laughs> you sign this yeah. contract?
2: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned too, just, you know, all the, how Aaron judge uh, based the Yankees offenses. And like, that's another guy just like, yeah, he's, he's doing, he's being everything everyone could say about him. You know, it's not good enough to help the Yankees, but that just makes his case even stronger. Like I did everything possible. And, and uh yeah, just, you know, the Yankees need me because without me, what would they be?
1: And that is a very, very valid point, not just in his contract negotiations, but also the very heated MVP race between Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani. I think this is going to be a fun series. Let's see on how the White Sox do. It's going to be a tough one, folks. Again, Seattle's the hottest team in the American League. Hopefully the White Sox would win, and then they take advantage of the Oakland Athletics in Oakland at the Coliseum, and they pick up that road series win. If the, I think it's very feasible, Jim, if the White Sox can go four and three in this road trip, I think that'll do wonders for them, especially with the Twins facing the Yankees and the Guardians, and then the Guardians going to Kansas City and then going to Minneapolis uh, to face the Twins. I, I think the White Sox, even if they go four and three, can still make up some ground in the American League Central.
2: I think that sounds about right, and I think you know they they Oakland gave them a tough time the last time, and I think that's one reason they won't take them for granted. But I really think you know between Miguel Cairo being there instead of Tony LaRusse and just the central being feasible now because of the way the guardians have uh face planted over the last week. Like I don't think any series will be taken for granted. If the white Sox, you know, struggle against an Oakland is because they just don't have it this year. Like, I think we can throw the idea of taking anything for granted, uh, you know, taking it easy out the window. Like this team either has it or it doesn't.
1: I like the happy episode. So let's have a good week. White Sox. We'll still have the wake-up calls for you during this week. We'll have Sox Machine live after the White Sox wrap up their series against the Seattle Mariners to recap what happened in Seattle and preview a little bit further into the weekend as the White Sox face the Athletics. And, of course, that big series between the Guardians and the Minnesota Twins will be also keeping an eye on. But that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoy our work and want more, you can help support us at Patreon.com/socksmachine, where our Patreon supporters receive exclusive content like the PO Socks Mailbag, ad-free versions of the podcast and website, and first opportunity to acquire our new Socks Machine swag. Monthly plans start at two dollars, and you can save with an annual subscription by signing up at Patreon.com/socksmachine. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. As the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.